but that you would also be their comforter, their father, their source of strength in a very trying time. God, as men and women who have gathered in this room this morning, as students, as children, we look forward to learning more of your nature and character. We ask that you would be in the midst of this moment, that your Holy Spirit would preside over it. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Let's go ahead and have a seat. Earlier this morning, there was a uh, single rose up here on the platform, and it was pink. Um, and we have a new tradition going on here at New Hope in which we're uh, giving out a single rose to new moms. And uh, Chad and Katie Ostrander had a little girl this week. Um, she had her in church with her, actually, at the first service. And uh, her name is Celia K. Rose. So if you see Chad and Katie later, you be sure and congratulate them. Beautiful little girl. Um, as in keeping with all of our uh, teaching and revelation that we've been going through, I've taken the time to fill out the, uh, the note card here that you also have that this answers the questions you might have, so it, it fills in the blanks after the service. If you happen to miss any of them, um, they'll be there on that sheet, but also they'll be up on the screen this morning, as they weren't last week, um, but they'll be there on the screen, so if you see something that um, looks like it's a fill in the blank, you'll know that that's there to answer the questions. As well, we did something new with the form this week, and we've included the Greek words that relate to the message. Had a few people writing in from the internet that uh, listened to the message on the webcast that have said that um, that helps them considerably if they could have the Greek words and the definition also. So we've included that on the sheet as well. I have a, uh, a little quote I want to share with you, something I came across, I can't remember when, uh, but I think it's a very profound statement. I'll let you read it just for a minute. Dan DeHaan wrote that book, The God You Can Know. And I would have to say, I totally agree with that statement. The deepest thought a person can ever have is his conception of God's character. You can't possibly fathom anything deeper than the nature and character of God. We talked about that a lot as we were working through the destiny of a man looking at the life of Joseph and then the destiny of a nation as we were looking at the birth of Israel, all in preparation for the destiny of the world as we study the book of Revelation. God's nature and character just oozes out of these stories and out of these texts. What we're going to look at today helps us to understand specific things about God's nature and character, specific thoughts that'll help us to think deeply about him. Thoughts such as this. Look on the screen with me at Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Every time I sit down to study the word of God, if I'm preparing a message, I always have to ask myself this question. What does Jesus want the congregation to know who will be listening to this text? What does he want to say to you? Things about his nature and character to be sure. I think this week in this particular portion of Revelation, he has something very specific to say. And it is, 
what he says he will do, he will accomplish. He never misses a beat. It's theology 101. So this morning, I'm gonna invite you to open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter three. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and do that. And if you didn't bring one with you, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Those are there for your benefit. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to take that with you so that you have a copy of God's word. So you can take it home and you own it. It it belongs to you. We're gonna be looking at a church called the Church in Philadelphia. And we're not talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, we're talking about Philadelphia in what we would call today the nation of Turkey. And this particular city was located 25 miles southeast of Sardis, which is the church that we learned about last week. So it's not too far away, but it had a very specific reputation. It was called the gateway to the east. The Romans knew it, the Greeks knew it, anybody who moved through this region, they wanted to travel through Philadelphia. It was not a big city. But think of it in terms of this. Think of it as being like Lansing or like Grand Rapids, a converge point of many highways that intersected the town with one highway specifically leading out to the region that we call Asia Minor, which was for them the east. Now the Greeks had a very specific agenda with this this city called Philadelphia. They wanted to spread Greek culture throughout the known Far East which would be Asia Minor. And so, Greek culture permeated throughout Philadelphia so that anybody traveling through would be exposed to Greek culture. This gave this particular city a really unique opportunity. This specific church had an opportunity to affect the known world in terms of people moving through and going beyond to the Far East. You're gonna see that come out in just a little while when Jesus speaks specifically to this church. Archaeologically and historically, what do we know about this particular region? Well, it was a great area for raising grapes. They were known for their wine. They still have a a great soil today, but it came at a cost. It was volcanic activity that had produced this really fertile, rich soil. As a matter of fact, this whole region was prone to earthquakes. And in 17 AD, this entire region was flattened. This city, along with 10 others, Sardis included, were completely destroyed. And because Tiberius Caesar had so much wealth and the power of Rome, he swept in, and with the money of Rome, they rebuilt this city. And they renamed it Philadelphia Neo Caesarea, Caesar, after Caesar Tiberius, to honor him. This particular region believed that they owed a great deal to Caesar. They're also known for a few other things, that produced leather goods and a little manufacturing, but this was really a very small area. So with that background in mind, let's go ahead and read this first verse here from Revelation. We'll find that Philadelphia is a very unique church. It's unique among all the other ones that we've discovered so far because Jesus has no complaint against it, none whatsoever. Revelation 3.7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now up to this point, we only have one church left to go, remember. Next week is the seventh church, and then we move into future things in chapter four. So this is number six, and number seven is next week. But up to this point, every single church, when Jesus addresses them, he's used a description from chapter one 
of John's vision. This description does not come out of chapter 1. This is something that's very unique. It's a different set of titles, and it's very, very ancient. It's very Hebrew, very Old Testament. I'll show you how. He who is holy and true. This is God describing aspects of his particular character. I'm going to show you a verse first that will help you understand this, that this is a title that was specific to God. First of all, let's jump forward in time. Revelation chapter 6. You'll see this on the screen. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see the title. Holy and true. This is a name that they called him. Those who were saints who were in heaven. Now if you have your own Bible and you don't mind writing in it, I'm going to encourage you to circle something. This phrase, those who dwell on the earth, you're going to see that repeated throughout the book of Revelation. That particular phrase refers to a group of people you're going to learn about in just a few minutes. So circle that if you don't mind because that's an important point to remember. Let's go on and look at some other characteristics of holiness. Holiness is the attribute of God who says this in Hosea 11.9, I am God and not man, the holy one in your midst. Okay, let's step forward one more point. Go to Isaiah 6.2. This is Isaiah standing in the throne room. Seraphim stood above him. He's describing what he's seeing in heaven. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, and I'm going to say it for you, like I believe the seraphim say it in heaven, holy, holy, holy. It's not wimpy like we read it. Holy, holy, holy. They're declaring truth, okay? Holy, holy, holy is who? The Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Anytime you see a title repeated three times in Scripture, that's a declarative truth about the characteristic of someone. So the seraphim, the most powerful beings in heaven other than God, cry out, holy, 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 three times declaring a specific truth about God. There is none that is like him. He is matchless. Okay, one more. Let's step into the throne room ourselves and see what John saw. Look at Revelation 4, 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Okay, so we get it. He's holy, which means separate, right? Separate from what? What is he separate from? Set apart. Let's look at the definition for the word holy. The word is hagias. Perhaps you've seen it before. I've talked to you about it before. The church is hagias to Jesus. We are holy to him. He set us apart. Scripture says that God is hagias. Here's the definition. An awful thing, sacred, physically pure, morally blameless, consecrated, the most holy one. I'm going to help you with that word, an awful thing, because it makes you think, 
Oh, yuck. Okay? But it's this. Yare. You remember that word? It means awesome. Not awful, bad, awesome. Wow! He's incredible. His holiness is too much to comprehend. That's why that's attached there. And he cannot and will not tolerate sin in his presence. He is so separate, he can't allow it. So therefore, we have a sacrifice of Jesus, but that's another story. Because he won't allow sin into his presence. Okay, one more to emphasize my point. I'm gonna set this up for you. In the book of Mark, we learn that Jesus was making his way throughout the Middle East, and he came to a town called Capernaum. And in this particular town called Capernaum, at this point in his ministry, he was so well-known that there were thousands of people following him. As a matter of fact, they couldn't fit in the same room together. There were so many people chasing after him. And he was invited when he came to Capernaum to speak in a Jewish synagogue. Jesus goes into the synagogue and scripture tells us that as he began to teach, the people were amazed at his teaching. And it says, because he taught as one having authority. And in the middle of his preaching, in the middle of his message, somebody interrupts him. You'll see it up on the screen. This comes from Mark chapter one, verse 23. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, meaning demon-possessed. And he cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. Even the demons know his title. They get it. They understand. So he says, I'm not only holy, I'm true, which means I'm trustworthy. I'm reliable. Let me show you a verse that emphasizes this, 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. The word used for true is alethanos, and it literally means the genuine article, as opposed to the fake. So what we have is Jesus establishing a pattern here, a messianic title, reaching out to the remnant of the Jewish people and speaking to the church at the same time. He says this, who has the key of David, what is that? That speaks to a very specific incident that happened in the realm of Israel under Judah when King Hezekiah was in power. And King Hezekiah had amassed a great deal of wealth. And with his wealth, he needed someone to steward the king's riches. And so he appointed a man who embezzled his funds from the treasury of the kingdom. And this guy who embezzled him, God kicked him out, removed him from the position, and installed a new person once Hezekiah discovered how crooked this guy was. So the new person was installed, and Hezekiah handed him the keys to the kingdom, meaning the keys to the treasure house. You'll see it in Isaiah 22, but here's just one verse to emphasize it. Isaiah 22:17. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. 
And notice it doesn't say that Jesus has a key. It says he has the key. The key to everything. I am holy. I am true, authentic. And I have the keys to the kingdom. I control your access to everything. Now in scripture, a key is just a very simple symbol, meaning the one who has the key has authority. He has control over everything. So Jesus says this, I can open the treasure house of heaven. Not just the treasure house of wealth, the treasure house of opportunity. So he says this, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Meaning his will cannot be opposed. So it has two different meanings. One is when he opens the door, it means he's opened the door to the kingdom of heaven. It stays wide open. Everyone can come in who claims Jesus Christ. I open it and no one can shut it. And the other thing is, he opens doors of opportunity to those who belong to him. You're gonna see that come out in just a minute. But Jesus opens the doors to the kingdom and doors of opportunity for each of us. Doors that he alone can keep open. So this is all set up to verse eight. Now you've heard his introduction. Look at verse eight. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my names. My name. Because I know your heart, I'm gonna do three things. You're gonna see those in just a minute. What were the three things that he, they did to be faithful to him? First of all, it says they have a little power and specifically that they have kept his word and that they have not denied his name. What does it mean that they have a little power? A little dunamis, a little dynamite. You know, a small explosion. They're small. This was a town of 15,000 people. This is probably a very small church. But the spirit of God was alive and active there. And Jesus is saying to them, you cannot do it on your own. You have me to give you more power. Mega dunamis. You have a little power. But because you have been faithful to my name, you have kept my word, I'm going to do something for you. So we learned last week when he wrote to the church in Sardis that they had the exact opposite problem. They didn't keep his word. And so Jesus chastised them. But this church has kept his word and they had not denied his name. How in the world could he say that? He could say that because there would have been opportunity for them to deny his name. He wouldn't have said that to them if there hadn't have been opportunity. There must have been a chance at some point in time where they could have denied him, but he's saying, you didn't do it, and you kept my word. So because you have not denied my name, because you've been faithful, I'm gonna open up this door of opportunity which no one can shut. And this is very important that we get this point. This is critical. An open door is given by the king, an open door to a biblical community, to a church. When the spirit of God is active in the church because the name has not been denied and the word of God has been exalted and taught. That's when he gives the power of the spirit. It's spiritual power that he's talking about here. We have to expect God to act. 
I've told this church before, perhaps you haven't heard me say this, but my life verse is 2 Chronicles 16.9. This is what it says. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. That's essentially what he's saying here. You have been faithful to me. You have not denied my word. You have kept my name. And so I'm going to open up doors of opportunity. There's a willingness on the part of this church, apparently, to step through the door and take on opportunity. I want you to really get this down because it requires us to understand the activity of the power of the Holy Spirit. Absence of the power of the Holy Spirit, the church doesn't do anything. It's non-existent. It doesn't function. This is how it functions. Each of us have the Holy Spirit within us when we name the name of Christ, when we say, I belong to him. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. But the power of the Holy Spirit is released when we are faithful to him and we read and understand and teach and learn and exalt his word and we don't deny his name, then all kinds of opportunity are open to a church. Those are the ones that act powerfully on behalf of God and God acts powerfully on their behalf. So there's two things that are central to the activities of a church, two things that are critically important. The word of God, we teach it, we preach it, we study it, we understand it because Jesus says, It's a high value to him. And the other thing is the proclamation of truth, even if it costs something. Even if it costs something to us personally, we still proclaim the church. So to a church that's responsive and ready to be used, Jesus says, there's an open door of opportunity for ministry. This particular church in Philadelphia was in such a strategic location because of the desire to move the Greek culture through it and out to the east, that they found themselves in a ripe harvest field. So much to the degree that of all the other seven churches, this church alone, whom Jesus had nothing negative to say about, remained for not just 10 years, not just 20, not just hundreds of years, but this church actually went off the record books in 1359. Can you imagine a church that had so much strength and power behind it that for more than a thousand years they were a force to be reckoned with? Even in the midst of a Muslim society, as the Turks took over Turkey, as Muslim influence became powerful there, this church still stood strong. And eventually all the Christians were kicked out of the country but they found themselves in a strategic location and Jesus gave them an open door of opportunity. The next thing we find is that Jesus protects those who belong to him. Verse nine, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. A few weeks ago, we learned about what the synagogue of Satan was. Those are people who vehemently opposed Jesus as Messiah, saying, no way, absolutely not. And that was the Jewish people, the synagogue of Satan. They considered themselves a synagogue of God, but scripture says they're a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus said, they claim they're Jews, but they're not. So because of their rejection of Jesus, they're not a synagogue of God, they're a synagogue of Satan. 
In the future, and we're gonna discover this as we move into the book of Revelation further, all the Jewish people, all of Israel will be saved. They will all come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Here's some homework for you. Later today, if you get the opportunity, read Romans 11.25 and read Zechariah 12.10. Romans 11.25 and Zechariah 12.10, and you'll find two verses from the Old Testament and the New Testament that say, all of Israel in the last days will turn to Jesus Christ and will be saved. But here we find an underlying core truth. Do you see what the underlying core truth was in that verse? I will make them come and bow down to you. This is a truth that's found throughout the book of Revelation that when people come to understand who Jesus is, they will bow down to him. Look up on the screen at Philippians 2.10. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you remember something in the study of the life of Joseph when we were moving through it? God promised Joseph that one day all of his brothers would bow down to him when they recognized his authority. What you find here is a playing out is the exact same biblical principle. When people recognize the authority of Jesus, King of Kings, they will bow before him. But there's an interesting twist on the words that take place here. Last week, I told you about, at the very end of the service, there's a day coming, if you belong to Jesus Christ, when he stands before God the Father and his angels in heaven, and he says, that person belongs to me. That person belongs to me. He will name you by name. Homola geo is the word, confess. I will confess your name before the Father in heaven. This word confess is not homologeo, it's exomologeo, and it means this, to acknowledge or agree fully, to profess, but there's a caveat. It's done with resistance. It's like, okay, I have to. There will be those who will recognize who he is. Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, non-anything, who will all one day, willfully or not, confess, he's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Last week, voluntarily, homologeo. In this setting, exomologeo. Okay, I understand who he is. Some with joy, some with remorse. Let's look at verse 10. At this point, I'm gonna, I'm gonna warn you here. We're stepping into the tribulation now, at this point, the great tribulation. We're dipping our toes into the rapture. And eyes can glaze over really quickly because this is technical stuff. But I'm gonna break it down for you. There's only two verses left here. And I want you to really get these down. Hear me on this. Before you read the verse and before you read the screen, there's a temptation on the part of believers when they read the Bible to just blow right through it and think, oh, I got that. When you do your personal study at home, when you take time to read God's word, take it a word or a sentence at a time. Really process what's being said here and ask yourself this question. Why? Why did he say, because you have kept my word, I will also keep you from the hour of testing? 
What's going on there? And stop yourself. Stop the temptation of just moving through it and move very slowly through it. I'm not going to drag this out too long because we're going to get into this later, but I really want you to understand the framework for this. Okay, let's look at verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now this is phrased in the framework of a promise. Because you have done this, I'm going to do this. So that's the way he starts it out. Because you have kept the word, I'm going to do something. My perseverance is like a reward here. I will do what? I will also keep you from the hour of testing. What is the hour of testing? This is a very clear reference to the great tribulation. The hour of testing is a specific period of time, seven years, in which the great tribulation will take place upon the earth. If you haven't grown up in church, you may not be familiar with that phrase, but the great tribulation is a period of time that begins with the arrival of Antichrist on the scene, on the world scene, and it's seven years long. And Jesus says the torment, the torture, the persecution, the trouble that will take place during that period of time, which is in the future, is so horrific, nothing like it has ever been seen on the face of the earth throughout all of history until that particular period of time. This is how Jesus referred to it from Matthew chapter 24. For then there will be a great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. If you want to do a really deep study, look at the book of Daniel, go to chapter 9, and learn about what's called the 70th week. We're going to look at that later ourselves. But the 70th week is a prophecy about each of the weeks and the things that lead up to the Antichrist. And this 70th week that's being referred to here by Jesus, being called the Great Tribulation, is something we need to get down and understand because we're moving into future things. So let's look first at the word great. Here's the word great. It's megas, meaning huge, big. But look at the definition that's attached with it. Big fear, exceedingly great, high, large, mighty, sore, afraid. Okay, megas what? Great, thlipsis. Look at the next definition for the word tribulation. Pressure, afflicted, anguish, burdened, persecution, tribulation, trouble. You see anything pretty there? There's nothing, is there? And this pressure that's referred to is a crushing pressure. Megas thlipsis that will take place on the whole planet, the whole world. I want to be respectful of the fact that there are different views of when the church will be raptured. My particular take on interpretation on Scripture and my hope is pre-tribulation, which means the church is removed before the tribulation period of time. It's called a pre-tribulation view. There are those who hold to a mid-tribulation view. There are those who hold to a post-tribulation view. Uh, a well-known individual, Billy Graham, is a post-tribulationist. It doesn't mean he's right, okay? It means he has a perspective on his interpretation of Scripture. 
Others who were post-trib would say, well, Mark's not right. He has a pre-trib view. Well, I'm very hopeful that I'm right about my pre-trib view, okay? <laughs> that the church will be removed before. And I'm going to show you why I hold the position that I do, okay? And there's individuals who attend here who hold a post-trib view. So we're going to look at both as we move through this, but not today. Today we're going to look at why I hold a pre-trib view. What I want you to look at, and if you don't mind circling in your Bible, circle the word keep. The word keep is tereo, okay? And here you're going to see the definition up on the screen. Tereo, to guard from loss or injury, Properly by keeping the eye upon, by extension, to withhold, hold fast, keep or preserve. Now, that word, to keep, tereo, could apply to both who believe the pre-trib view and the post-trib view, couldn't it? You could be preserved through the tribulation, except when you take the full sentence, it says tereo ek. Tereo ek means from, being taken from. So you can see why there's much debate over this word tereo. And what is he going to keep us from? This is the promise, remember. He says, I'm going to keep you from that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is the second part of why I believe in a pre-trib view. Okay? This phrase, who dwell upon the earth, and I told you to circle that in the very beginning of the teaching today. This phrase repeats itself six times throughout Scripture in the book of Revelation. This I take as a promise to us, okay? I know this is technical, so stay with me here. Hang on to this. This word, those who dwell upon the earth, I'm going to explain after these five points. I want you to see this position on this verse. Take a look at these first five breakdowns. The test is yet future. The test is for a definite, limited time. Jesus described it as the hour of testing, which means it's got a benchmark and a beginning and an end. Number three, the test is for a definite, uh, definite limited time. Number three, it is a test that will expose people for what they really are. That's a purpose of a test. Number four, the test is worldwide in its scope. So we know it's future. Something like this has never happened. It's coming in the future. And here's the fifth part. Its purpose is to test those who dwell on the earth. What does that mean? The literal interpretation in the Greek of that particular phrase is those who live for earthly things, those who live for materialism. This world is all there is, so I'm going to take it, and I'm going to get it for what I can get. That's what this phrase means, those who dwell upon the earth. In other words, it's referring to unbelievers. It's a technical term in the book of Revelation for those who have rejected Christ. So what we have here are five different positions on why I hold this position of a pre-trib rapture. The test is yet future. The test is for a definite limited time. It's a test that will expose people. The test is worldwide in its scope. And its purpose is to test those who dwell upon the earth. The promise that we find in this verse is to the whole church because it's to be delivered from this period of time. I don't know if you've read Thessalonians lately, but there's a promise there that when Jesus returns for us, this is what it will look like. This is the way Paul wrote it when he wrote to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, 
and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. If you don't happen to have that Bible verse down and want to know it, it's 1 Thessalonians 4.16. So let's move into the last verse. How does this happen? He says, when I come, I will come quickly. Verse 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. We learned in the very first week when we started Revelation eight weeks ago that when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, it doesn't mean like tomorrow quickly. It means when it happens, it happens very fast in succession. Everything unfolds very quickly. So when I come, I'm coming quickly and hold fast. Hang on tight to what you have and let no one take your crown. Your crown is your rewards. It's not your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. This is referring specifically to your crown of life is what scripture calls this, a reward that's been given to you. So verse 12, this is how Jesus ends it. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And my new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Two promises in there, did you get them? Two promises to the nekao. Remember we said the overcomer is called a nekao, one who's victorious, one who gets the victory? So two promises. I will make him a pillar in the temple. What is a pillar? Represents stability. What happened to these people in Philadelphia? They lived constantly with earthquakes. Do you know that historians tell us that for a long period of time after AD 17, after that earthquake flattened that town, that for years afterwards, the tremors were so powerful because that town exists right on a fault line. The tremors were so powerful that people constantly vacated the town, running out into the country, afraid that they were gonna relive what they had just gone through with buildings collapsing again. The only thing historians tell us that remained after the earthquake and after the tremors were the pillars of the temple. So we have a sense here of Jesus saying, I'm gonna give you permanence, stability, powerful planting. You're gonna be a pillar in the temple of my God. Interestingly, there's another link with a pillar in the temple at that period of time. One who was a faithful servant to the community who had done exceedingly up and beyond what was expected had a pillar placed in the temple in their name and their name was inscribed in the pillar, giving permanent memory to this individual. I don't know that that's what Jesus is referring to here, but he's using some powerful imagery. Then he says, I'm gonna tattoo you. Do you get that? I'm gonna put my name on you. Specifically, I'm gonna put the name of my God on you. I will write on him. When you think of guys who are in the military who have, in a moment of haste perhaps, run out to a tattoo shop and got the name of one of their girlfriends put under their arm, what are they saying specifically? They're saying, I belong to that person and they belong to me. You're seeing imagery here in which Jesus is saying, I'm not only going to write the name of my God on you, I'm going to write the location of where you belong and I'm going to write a new name on you. This all speaks to 
belonging. Think last week, Jesus said, homo I will confess you before the universe. I won't only confess you, I'm gonna write my name on you in the name of God and the name of the city. So I don't know how you feel about tattoos, but Jesus says you're gonna get one eventually someday, okay? Stop, think, listen. That's what he's saying. Let the Spirit speak to you because this controls your destiny. This is all about your future. That's what this is spelling out for us. Do you see the successive work of God building the churches to understand? I'm getting you ready. There's something amazing coming, but you need to be prepared for it first. When I watched what happened in Haiti this last week, I was reminded of an incident that took place in 1989. In Armenia, up until that point, we hadn't known some really powerful earthquakes, but in 1989, there was an earthquake that registered 8.2 on the Richter scale. The one that took place in Haiti was in the sevens, not to minimize that. But within three minutes period of time, that earthquake that was so powerful did so much destruction to Armenia that 30,000 people died within the first three minutes. A particular man who lived in Armenia in a small village had walked his son to school that morning. When he walked his son to school, he was having a conversation with him. Didn't know what lay ahead of them for the day's events. His son's name was Arman. Arman was in elementary school. He went to a high-rise building, three, four stories up. Arman and his dad walked along this trail to get to the school, and his dad said to him, Arman, I want you to know something. As your dad, I will always be there for you, no matter what. I will always be there. The events took place, and the earthquake shattered Armenia. Everything collapsed. The father made sure that things were in good stead at his home, left his wife there, and ran off to the school building. When he arrived, all he saw was clouds of dust because the t- entire school building had collapsed. Four stories, right down to one. People were wailing. Instead of him beginning to cry, he remembered where he left his son off at because he had walked him right to his own classroom that morning. He went to the back of the building on the right-hand side in the very back and began removing rubble with his hands, trying to dig his way through these massive piles of cement. People approached him who were sobbing because they'd lost their children, saying, what are you doing? They're all dead. Go home and tend to your wife. At which he turned to them and said, will you help me now? And when they didn't, he began to continue to dig. Eventually, the authorities of the school district and the people of the town who were in authority came up to him and said, don't bother. They're dead. There's no way they're alive. The building has collapsed on them. Go home and tend to your wife. He turned to them and said, are you going to help me now? No one did. He began to dig further and more feverishly because he remembered in the back of his mind the promise he had made to his son, I will always be there for you. Eight hours turned into 12, 12 turned into 24. At the end of 24 hours, gas fires were erupting because of broken pipelines and firemen and policemen were coming to him and saying, You're in danger of your life and you cannot survive here. You need to leave. And he turned to them and said, 
will you help me now? No one did. And with tears streaming down his face, he began to continue to pull the rocks away. 36 hours without sleep, pulling away rocks with his hand. On the 38th hour, he heard his son say, Dad, is that you? Armand, you're alive. Yeah, Dad, me and 14 others. When the building collapsed, it created a wedge, a little teepee, and all 14 kids were underneath there. Armand said, Dad, I told the other kids in my class that you were coming because you said you would always be there for me. And I told them that if you were alive, you were going to come. He said, come on out, Armand. Armand said, no, Dad, I know you'll be there when I come out. Let the other kids come out first. That's the promise of your God. I will do what I said I will do. No more powerful promise than that in the world. I will be there. I will accomplish my will. Can you pray with me?